Daniel 9, 1 through 27. Um, The title of this sermon is A Prayer and a Prophecy. If you knew that something very specific was going to happen, let's say seven days from now, how would that affect your prayer life? If you knew what was going to happen, would you pray at all? Let's phrase it this way. If God told you that he was sovereignly going to do something, would you continue to pray for it? If you would, why? If that question piques your interest this morning, we're going to see this exact thing happen in the text that was just read by Joel a few moments ago. So let's dive in. Our two main sections this morning are, as the title of the sermon says, point one, a prayer in verses 1 through 23, and then point two, a prophecy in verses 24 through 27. So point one, a prayer. Now look with me first at verses 1 and 2. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. So, to set the context for us here, remember where we are in the book of Daniel. In chapters 1 through 6, we saw a narrative of Daniel's life. It was on a, a timeline that progressed forward year by year by year. Then, in chapters 7 through 8, we jumped back in time to the reign of King Belshazzar of Babylon. Daniel saw visions that reminded him that even though things were bad, and going to be bad, that God wins in the end. Here in chapter 9, we're moved forward in the timeline again to King Darius the Mede, who we believe to be the same guy as Cyrus. So, here Daniel is, in the first year of this king, the one who would soon throw him in the lion's den. And what's Daniel doing? He's reading the scriptures. Look there in verse 2. He says, I perceived where? In the books. And what is it that Daniel sees in the scriptures that he's reading? It says, the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. He's most likely reading in Jeremiah chapter 25 and 29. In Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 11 through 12, it says this. It says, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then, after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. A couple chapters later, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10 says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, meaning Jerusalem. So, initially, years ago, when Daniel was a teenager, at the beginning of this book, he saw Jeremiah's prophecy of judgment take place. God promised that his people would be judged and sent into exile, right? God fulfilled that promise through the hands of the Babylonians. Daniel read that in Jeremiah, and then he lived it. He experienced it. Now, he's reading again, and he sees that God has promised through Jeremiah that after 70 years, he's going to punish who? The king of Babylon. Daniel just experienced that happening. Remember Daniel chapter 5, writing on the wall story. God shows up and judges the king of Babylon. Requires his life. But Daniel also knows that right after that, 
God not only promises to punish the king of Babylon, he promises to bring his people back to this place, to Jerusalem. First, do you see that, that scripture shapes Daniel's prayer life? His time in the word is actually molding how he prays in this passage. He looks in the book, and then he looks to heaven. Now, I can't recommend this practice enough, praying through the lens of Scripture. If you want to know for certain that you're praying the will of God, if so, pray the Bible. Like Daniel, take the promises of God from the Word of God and pray for them. There are so many great prayers that Paul prays in the letters that are easy just to pick up and use as a grid for your prayers. Here's another easy example. If you've been around me, you've probably heard me pray this a time or two. James chapter 1, verse 5. It says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So, what am I doing in my prayers? Praying for wisdom. Why? Because God's word told me to. That's a prayer that God wants to answer. He's told us to pray for it right there in his word. This is why we shape our congregational prayer in the way that we do each week. We want to pray through the lens of scripture regularly. This isn't to say that we don't bring personal prayers to God. We absolutely should. That's good. But praying scripture should be a regular part of our spiritual diet. If you'd like to understand and maybe even grow in this discipline, uh, there's a guy named Don Whitney who has a book called Praying the Bible. It's really short and really rich. It's a fantastic resource. Don Whitney's Praying the Bible. So, Daniel's prayer from the beginning is word-shaped. He's reading the Bible and then praying. So, that helps us answer our first question. If God is sovereign, and he's sovereignly decreed something, for example, that he'd return his people after 70 years of exile, why is Daniel praying at all? I mean, shouldn't he just kind of sit back passively and watch God do what God's going to do anyway? No. First off, that assumes that we're not part of God's sovereign plan. Look, God is sovereign. He's in complete control of every molecule in the universe. He made that abundantly clear to us in Daniel chapter 1 through 6. But he uses means to accomplish his purposes. He uses you and me. He uses our obedience to him to move his plans forward. He uses our prayers to move his plan forward. The question isn't, why should I pray if God's sovereign? It's because God is sovereign, I pray. You see that? Daniel knows what God has promised. And he knows that he's called to pray in line with God's will. So he prays for God to fulfill his promises. He's part of God's promises being fulfilled. There's not a question of if God's promises will fail here. He prays in confidence and in solidarity with God's word. So Christian, think about this. What if you were to take a text like Philippians 1.6? Paul says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There's certainty there, right? If you're a Christian, you can be certain of this truth. You can be sure of it. But what if you begin to pray this truth? 
saying, God, thank you for beginning a good work in me by giving me new birth in Christ. Bring that to completion. Sanctify me, God. Make me more and more whole and more and more in Christ's image today. Even in the midst of trials, God, use those to complete me. Your work, God, isn't finished in me. But thank you for beginning this good work. Thank you for promising not to quit. That's praying the promises of God. So that's what Daniel's doing. So how does he pray? Yes, with confidence. But also with humility and repentance. Look here at verse 3. He says, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer, and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. This isn't just casual prayer that Daniel's doing here. He's begging for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. These were symbols of intense mourning and repentance sin. Now, don't get me wrong. We should be praying continuously. And a lot of those prayers are going to be what we say on the go. They may often be casual. And that's part of the beauty of having God as our Father and Jesus as our mediator. We can talk to God in this way. But Do we ever take time to pray in the way that Daniel prays here? Now, I'm not saying we get dressed up in sackcloth and ashes, but I am advocating this posture, a posture of deep repentance, a time set aside to intensely plead with God, something more than just casual prayer. That's Daniel's reaction to what he reads here in Scripture. So that's how he prays. But what does he pray? Again, I'll ask the question. If you were in Daniel's shoes here, what would you pray for? The content of Daniel's prayer here can be broken down into three main categories. Adoration... Confession and petition. Adoration, confession, and petition. First, adoration. Look how he starts in verse 4. He says, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. In beginning this way, Daniel accomplishes two different things. He first reminds himself of who God is, and he's couching his prayers in the character of God. It's like a little kid who's pleading with their parents. You know how this goes. Dad, remember, you're a good dad. You're honorable. You have integrity. Remember what you promised me that you'd do, Dad? And again, this isn't because God's in danger somehow of forgetting who he is. It's a posture of soul that's praying not based on our own desire or or to somehow manipulate God into doing something that he doesn't want to do. It's a posture of submitting ourselves and our prayers to God's character. When we pray this way, our hearts and even our requests are often changed. Is this where your prayer usually starts? Adoration? Acknowledging who God is? I have to confess, I often don't. I tend to jump right to asking God for things. Daniel Henderson, he rightly notices that so often in our prayers, we tend to seek God's hand before we seek his face. 
He says this. He says, I have learned that if all we ever do is seek God's hand, we may miss his face. But if we seek his face, he will be glad to open his hand and satisfy the deepest desires of our hearts. So do you begin your prayers by seeking God's face or by seeking his hand? Daniel, here in our text, begins with the former. Ian DeGood, he notes that the focus of Daniel's acknowledgement was on God's greatness and his grace. His greatness and his grace. Verse 4. He says, the Lord is the great and awesome God. Verses 7 and 14, he's righteous. Verse 15, he's the one who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day. Do you see his greatness and his grace? Verse 4, he's a God who keeps his covenant of love. Verse 9, He's a God who's merciful and forgiving. God's greatness and his grace. So Daniel begins with adoration. Then he quickly moves to confession. After proclaiming who God is, Daniel acknowledges that his own people have been quite the contrast to who God is. They're the opposite of God. Look at the content of verses 5 through 15. Once more, Ian DeGood points out here. He says, The contrast between the Lord and his covenant people is underlined by the pattern of doubling synonyms. On one hand, the Lord is great and awesome, righteous and forgiving, faithful to all who love him and obey his commands, while Israel has sinned and done wrong, been wicked and rebelled, and has turned away from your commands and laws. Just consider these words for a second. Verse 5, sinned and done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, turned away. Verse 6, not listened. Verse 7, disloyalty. Verse 8, public shame. Sinned. Verse 9, rebelled. Verse 10, not obeyed. Verse 11, broken your law, turned away, refusing to obey. Sinned. Verse 13, iniquities. Verse 14, not obeyed. Verse 15, sinned, acted wickedly. Now, Consider this. What did we learn about Daniel in chapters 1 through 6? Specifically in chapter 6. He's faithful, right? The, the king's high officials, they, they tried to dig up some dirt on him, and what did they find? Nothing. They couldn't find anything on him. And that's why this prayer is so shocking. Do you see the pronouns that Daniel's using here? He's looking out over God's people, and he's not saying, God, forgive them. They're wicked. They're sinful. No. Look at the pronouns. Daniel uses we or us or our more than 20 times in this text alone. He's putting himself in the place of rebel sinners. And he's interceding on their behalf. Do you see it? Well, we know that Daniel isn't sinless. He's pointing so clearly to one who is. Again, Jesus is a better Daniel. For 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse, verse 21. Speaking of Jesus, it says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, speaking of Jesus, it says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, 
and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with who? The transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. And what does he do? He makes intercession for the transgressors. Daniel is remarkable. He's stepping in and praying prayers of confession for sinners, wearing sackcloth and ashes. But Jesus is better. He's sinless, wearing human flesh, bearing our sins, and making intercession for us. Daniel was a godly man standing in as a representative for God's people. Jesus was a perfect man standing in as a representative for God's people. Do you see it? Daniel is amazing. He's a faint shadow of the Christ he's meant to point us to. There's so much that that we could linger on here in Daniel's prayer of confession. But I want to ask two quick questions. Do you ever take time in your prayers to confess sin? Just like with adoration before, it's so easy to jump right to asking God for things. And never to, as David does in Psalm 32, acknowledge our sin. We intentionally, each week, give time to confession of sin right here in this service. Because that's good for us. But our hope is that this is a regular rhythm of our Christian lives. Do you ever take time to confess sin in your prayers? Second, and more importantly, do you realize that, like Daniel, Jesus is our intercessor? Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Paul says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. And where is he? He's at the right hand of God, who is indeed is interceding for us. Do you believe that, Christians? That's not meant to be a rhetorical question. Do you believe that? If you do, do you see how that changes even our prayers of confession? When you pray and confess sin, you have an advocate before the Father interceding on your behalf. He's there reminding God the Father that he died for the sins that you're confessing. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23 through 25 says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, meaning Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christian, you're not confessing as someone who's about to be smote. You're confessing as someone who's already been forgiven by Jesus, the better Daniel. You can come boldly before the throne of grace. Christians are confessing people. We're not people who think we have it all together. We're people who know that we don't. We regularly confess our sins to God. Adoration and confession are central to prayer. Daniel continues on to petition. Look at verses 15 through 19. He says, And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day, 
We have sinned and done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill. Because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake. O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Daniel's ask here is clear. He's asking for a restoration of Jerusalem. But yet again, he's rooting that request in God's word and God's character. In verse 15, he remembers what God did in the Exodus, in graciously rescuing sinful and undeserving people. In verse 16, he's asking God how? According to his righteous acts. And do you see the why behind Daniel's request here? It's God's name. He says, God, you've made a name for yourself. This is your holy hill. This is for your own sake. It's your sanctuary. The city that is called by your name. Delay not. Why? For your own sake. Because your city and your people are called by your name. What a prayer. It's laced with God's glory. Even in his requests, God's fame and name and glory are at the center. Dale Ralph Davis says that Daniel here batters heaven with appeals to God's honor. I love that. He batters heaven with appeals to God's honor. Again, I ask you, brothers and sisters, is this how your prayers look? Again, I have to confess, mine often don't. What if our prayers, even our request, were rooted in God's glory and in his name? Think about it. If you're praying and asking God for a new job, what if you were praying like this? God, I want your name to be magnified. If, if getting this new job will do that, God, please make it happen. What about praying for our city? God, I see so many people around Santa Cruz who don't know you. Or even worse, defame your glory. God, would you save them? Not so that our church might grow so that your name would be more and more and more glorified in this place. How could you root your prayer request in God's name and in his glory? That's the core of Daniel's petition here. So, what have we learned about Daniel's prayer? First, it's rooted in God's word. Second, it's structured in adoration, confession, and petition that's still rooted in God's word and character. And look what happens next. Verses 20 through 22. Daniel says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, 
came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. So the words of prayer are still on Daniel's lips when Gabriel shows up. Can you imagine that? Have you ever prayed and thought in your mind, just wondered, is God really listening? Daniel never has to wonder. He gets an immediate answer. We know from history that within a year of the fall of Babylon, which would have been right after this prayer, that the Jews were allowed to return home to Jerusalem. We'll learn later that this was only a partial fulfillment of God's word. But isn't God gracious? He allows Daniel to know that his prayers were heard immediately. Do you know that? It's the same for us here this morning. God always hears our prayers immediately, even when we don't get immediate answers. God loves hearing his children's prayers, especially those that plead for his glory. And I want to point out just how God-centered Daniel's prayer life was at this point. Do you see what Daniel said in verse 21? He's recalling for us Gabriel showing up. And he says that Gabriel came when? At the time of the evening sacrifice. It might be easy for us to miss this. But where is Daniel when he's praying this prayer? Not Jerusalem, right? What happened to Jerusalem and the temple? Destroyed almost 50 years before this prayer. So no evening sacrifices since 586 BC. Yet, here's this 80-something-year-old man still telling time on God's clock. This is Psalm 137, verses 5 through 6. It says, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest priority, or above my highest joy. To be clear, this isn't about love for a particular city. Jerusalem represents God's presence and worship of the one true and living God. Daniel's identity is rooted in God's calendar. He's in Babylon, but he's not Babylonian. His thought life is still regulated by the worship of God. That's beautiful. He lives in this city. He serves this city relentlessly. But it clearly isn't his identity. His life is lived on God's clock. Is this how your life is oriented? Around God's schedule? His presence? Around worship? Or would you have to confess that the world more runs your calendar? For Daniel, his whole life was rooted in the presence of God and the worship of that one true and living God. And then look at what Gabriel says in verse 23. He says, At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you. Why? For you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Can you imagine... How encouraging that must have been to have a messenger from God show up and tell you that you are greatly loved. Friends, do you know that 
This is true of you too in Christ. The most famous verses in the Bible, God's message to us, says this. John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Because of Jesus' sacrificial, substitutional, atoning death on the cross, your prayers are heard. Your sins are forgiven. And you're greatly loved, treasured, Let that sit in your mind and heart for a second. You are greatly loved. If you're not a Christian this morning, you can have all of this through turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus at this very moment. Repent and believe in Jesus as your only hope of salvation. So God encourages Daniel through Gabriel. But he also tells him, amidst couching it in, that you are greatly loved, he tells him that he's going to give him understanding. See, we learned earlier that Daniel understood clearly about the 70 years of exile prophesied by Jeremiah. But he needed to understand the 70 weeks or the 70 sevens. The return to Jerusalem was only a partial fulfillment of God's promises. There was something greater. But it wouldn't happen for another 77s. It would be in the future. Like with Daniel and Jesus, Jerusalem, we should know, is a type of heaven. Return of God's people to Jerusalem is a foretaste of the return of God's people to the garden, to heaven, to restored relationship and communion with God. And that brings us to our final four verses. Point two, a prophecy. Before I read these verses, I have to preface it with this. Uh, Almost every commentator that I read says that these verses are legitimately the hardest in the Bible to interpret. Uh, Alistair Begg, one of my favorite Scottish preachers, he, he once playfully said this about these verses. He said, In what follows, I reserve the right to change my mind later this evening, and as often as necessary for the rest of my life, until I finally settle the matter. He says, what I'm about to now unfold for you will annoy some, disappoint others, confuse many, and perhaps encourage a few. I like that. That's strangely encouraging to me this morning. (laughs) Because this is true, uh, I want to try to be as concise as possible and zero in here on where there's clarity. So look with me at verse 24. And again, I would just add, there are godly people who disagree on the interpretation of this text. So um, here we go. Verse 24. It says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. So first, 70 weeks, as it's translated, is literally 70 sevenths. Uh, While many interpret this to be a literal 490 years, I do not. And and I take my cue from Jesus here. In Matthew chapter 18, when Peter asks Jesus how many times he must forgive, what does Jesus say? As many as seven times. Or he, he, Jesus, he asked Jesus, do I have to forgive as many as seven times? 
He thinks he's being really generous there with saying, do I have to give even seven, forgive even seven times? What's Jesus' response to him? Verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. The literal rendering is 70 times seven. Do you think Jesus meant for Peter to tally up 490 times and then just to stop forgiving? I don't think so. His point was, Peter, keep forgiving. Now, almost always in Scripture, the number seven is symbolic. One commentator notes that behind all biblical uses of seven lie the seven days of creation. Thus, the return from exile is not simply a new exodus, but a new creation, and thus foreshadows the end time. That's what I believe is happening here. Do you remember what we said all the way back in Daniel chapter 4? Nebuchadnezzar, the text told us that he was humbled for seven periods of time. We acknowledged then that this meant God's perfect timing. That's what I see here in Daniel 9. Seventy sevens. Each of these time periods will be in God's perfect timing. Gabriel is giving Daniel a prophecy about God's perfect plan in God's perfect timing. So, what are the six things in verse 24 that he says are going to happen? Got them up here on the screen for us. One, transgression will be finished. Two, sins will be brought to an end. Three, reconciliation will be made for iniquity. Four, everlasting righteousness will be established. Five, vision and prophecy will be sealed. And then six, the most holy will be anointed. Just, just look at that list for a second. As Christians, if you're looking at that list, we, we can't help but correctly understand these things to be fulfilled ultimately in the work of Christ. Quoting directly from Sinclair Ferguson here, I can't say it better than this. He says, Jesus came to die for our sins, that through him we might die to sin and be raised to a new life of righteousness. It is because these things have been accomplished by him that grace reigns through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ does more than this. He came to seal up vision and prophecy. He is God's last word, according to Hebrews 1.1. In him, all the promises of God receive their yes and amen. In him alone is found the vision of God and his purpose. In him, prophecy and prophet are united. The most holy is a reference to the holy of holies, the tabernacle and all the furniture of which were consecrated to God by careful ritual. Jesus came to fulfill all that the Holy of Holies represented. Jesus himself was and is the most holy. He perfectly fulfilled all six of those things. So let's think through this timeline a little bit. Verse 25. It says, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks or seven sevens. Then for sixty-two sevens, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. The first seven weeks or sevens seems to refer to Cyrus's decree which, as we learned, allowed Daniel's people to return to Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple. That's what he was praying for in his prayer. That would happen actually quickly after this prayer. But then, Gabriel tells him there would be 62 weeks or sevens after that. This seems to refer to the time period from the days when the temple and the city of Jerusalem were rebuilt to the arrival of Jesus, the Anointed One. So, 
first seven sevens, and then 62 sevens after that. Now look at verse 26. And after the 62 sevens, or weeks, an appointed one shall be cut off, or an anointed one shall be cut off, and he shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Do you see that? Again, this is so clearly a reference to the work of Christ. An anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Gabriel's using the words of violent penal death here. Look at Isaiah 53. It's one of the most famous prophecies about Jesus. Isaiah 53, verse 8, it says, By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? This prophecy, both in Daniel and in Isaiah, was fulfilled by Jesus on the cross. What did Jesus say from the cross? Quoting the words of Psalm 22, Jesus cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We sing this song, How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away. He's cut off. As wounds which mar the chosen one brings many sons to glory. He was cut off for our sin. He took the penalty that we deserve. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Who are these people of the prince who is to come? Satan's people. From the time of Christ's crucifixion, he's telling Daniel there's going to be continued war between the seed of Eve and the seed of the serpent. We've seen this theme over and over and over again in Daniel. Do you see just how upside down the message of the gospel is? It's good news that our Savior was cut off. It's only through that work that he would ultimately crush Satan's head. Through death, he'd bring victory. Through being cut off, he'd bring new life and a new covenant. Gabriel wants Daniel to understand that there's going to be a return to Jerusalem. That's about to happen. But the war is going to rage on until the end. The story of redemption won't be completed with the return from exile. So he's saying, trust and persevere. Finally, verse 27. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come the one who makes desolate until the, de decree, uh, the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now, a key question here for this verse is who is he? Who's the he that he's talking about? Depending on your view of eschatology or end times, the he could be referring to different people. Some see this as a reference to Antichrist, making a political deal with the Jews at the end of time. Again, I don't understand it this way, even though there are godly people who do. I believe that the he here is a reference to Christ. Remember, when Christ was cut off, what did that do? brought about a new covenant in his blood. 
Who is the strong covenant made with? Many, the text tells us. This isn't universalism. This covenant is made with diversity, with many, with Jews and Gentiles, with people of all nations. But it's not made with all. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, says, Even as the Son of Man came, not to, to be served, but to serve. And what did he do? Give his life as a ransom for who? Many. What about when Jesus was introducing the Last Supper? Matthew 26, verses 27 and 28, says that he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. And what did this new covenant for many accomplish? When Jesus was on the cross, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. The temple and its sacrifices became obsolete. He cried out on the cross, it is finished. There was no more need for temple sacrifice because he had atoned for the sins of his people. What does Hebrews chapter 10 verses 16 through 18 say? It says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and will write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Do you see that? Spiritually, Jesus destroyed the need for the temple there on the cross. Physically, Titus, the Roman, would destroy the temple in A.D. 70. Gabriel's prophecy was fulfilled. God is in complete control. He knows the end from the beginning. Because that's true, you can trust him today. You can trust him in everything. And in the midst of that trust, in his sovereignty, you can pray with confidence. Jesus has accomplished what Gabriel said to Daniel. In Christ, all that God wanted to accomplish was. Let's pray.